Welcome to Evoke Greatness. My name is Sunny, and this is my weekly podcast, driven by my curious nature and fascination with the champion mindset. I have an insatiable hunger for growth and knowledge, and am dedicated to sharing the stories of myself and others and how we've navigated this journey to greatness, all while stumbling through valuable lessons along the way. I am a huge book nerd and a wee bit of a control enthusiast with an obsession for motivational coffee cups. I believe that a rising tide raises all ships, and I invite you along in this journey to evoke greatness. Welcome back to another episode of Evoke Greatness. I am excited to be able to chat with my guest today. Brittany Canterbar is the founder of Powher, and I've got a I've got to give that the emphasis it deserves, right? Powher, P-O-W, capital H-E-R. That is a movement that encourages women to be their best selves. Brittany started Power in 2021 out of the frustration and the call to do more, be more, have more, and change more. Power is about giving women the tools they need to achieve their goals and dreams. Brittany is passionate about helping women find their voice and their power so that they can make a difference in their world. She lives by her motto, you have everything you need inside of you. Brittany is dedicated to helping women find their voice and claim their power. Brittany, welcome. I think there's so much gold we're about to dig into today. Uh, I have had the good fortune of being able to hear you speak before. You were gracious enough to be a guest on our our ideal uh, membership meeting where you gave a powerhouse presentation on negotiating pay and really tactical steps around that that people got so much value out of. So really excited to have you on today so we can go, you know, I don't know, 11 layers deeper than we went on that meeting. (laughs) For those of you who may not know Brittany, Brittany, would you share your story about what led you to creating power? Absolutely, Sunny. And first and foremost, thank you so much uh, for allowing me to have this conversation with you today. I don't know about you, but anytime that I get to just talk to other powerful women, it just gives me this energy that I can't even describe. But it's, it's for me, it's the same as sitting down in a motivation or doing a yoga class, which I need to do, I think, more of both. But <laughs> <laughs> we all do, right? Right. But no, I mean, you know, you, you, you really summed that up for me greatly. And, you know, I had spent 16 years in corporate America. And what I found along the way was a real gap in the market when it came to mentorship. So I've always been a firm believer in coaching. I think I had a coach in my early 20s. I still have a coach today. And what I found along the way is I kept running across coaches that would effectively tell me everything that I should do in theory or everything that I should do if, you know, the stars aligned and and there was rainbows and unicorns and I worked for this incredible organization. And so every time I would take a lot of that advice and actually put it out there, I failed pretty miserably, right? So what I really found, and I was really fortunate enough to find a couple incredible coaches along the way, was those that actually had been there, done that, and lived through the hell and actually came out on the other side and had, you know, what I learned was about their failures. And so that's really, I saw that gap. But, you know, way before then, you know, I grew up in a really small town in North Carolina, right outside of Asheville. And I grew up a very blue collar family. My mother was beyond the breadwinner and my father was a carpenter. And so she wanted to instill in myself and my two younger sisters from the very beginning, 
what it meant to be hard work. So they actually put me working for him in the summers <laughs> during summer break, literally building houses. And so I've been working in male dominated fields because construction boy was that male dominated Yeah, from the time I was 15 years old, you know, at part time. And then obviously, you know, throughout the rest of my career. So I purposely chose the most challenging work environments that were beyond male dominated, global, European, you know, you name it, that the cultural difference was there on top of what us that here, you know, in the U.S. as women that deal with. And I did that very strategically. And because I wanted to, again, get to where I could in my career, where I had the tools and resources to give back to other executive women so I could fill that gap in the market. And I can't tell you how much I've loved Every single moment of it, every single day I get to do, get up and do something that really makes my heart sing and not within someone else's parameters. Yeah. Isn't that the goal? Kind of perfectly leads into one of my one of my next questions. Let me ask one question before I go to the next question, because it's a great segue and it's, it's perfect. You teach executive women in corporations how to build a better table through enabling women to take control in their professional and personal lives. How do you go about doing that? Walk us through the process. Yeah, and it's a very organic process. Um, you know, again, being, I'm, I was your programs girl for a long time. You know, if I saw a program online, I bought it. I think I'm certified in almost every assessment out there. You know, your Meyer Briggs, your Hogan, your ELI, you name it. And what I wanted to do was take a very holistic approach because the things that I dealt with weren't things that were necessarily textbook or necessarily my personality because. I'm a very type A dominant, you know, personality so that I already had that piece that I just happened to be able to manipulate. What I didn't have were the things that weren't addressed. Um, so I really take that from a combination of coaching through mindset shifts and coupled with my consulting of the darts that I threw, those that stuck, those that didn't. And when I talk about mindset shift and talking about the whole self, now I do not profess to be a life coach whatsoever, but what I found was whenever I would walk into um, a boardroom, you know, that was filled full of, of men and all of a sudden I started getting interrupted, there was this little voice inside of me that said, you're not good enough. You know, you're, you shouldn't be here. Um, you know, all of those things. And that was what you can't, my opinion, uh, necessarily learn from a program. This is something that you have to learn every day and actually work on it every single day. So to even now being the CEO of my own company, I still struggle with that, right? I'm no longer the smartest kid in class. There's entrepreneurs that are light years ahead of me, you know, that have all these followers and all of this revenue coming in, right? So I constantly even now have to say, absolutely, you deserve to be here. Why shouldn't you? And, and that is why I bake that into my coaching program, specifically my flagship program, because that is not something learned overnight. And that's certainly not something that's taught within one call with me, right? That is a daily practice of constantly saying, you know what, society, this box that you put me in, I don't fit there. And that's okay. And because I look different than everyone else that fits there, that's okay too. And being able to use that as my superpower, as my differentiator to actually disrupt the market. You know, it's interesting. Something stood out to me that you said, and that was that moment of uh, where you can almost, the air almost gets sucked out of the room in your mind, in your lens, in your own narrative around, oh my gosh, I don't belong here. Oh my gosh, I'm not good enough to be at this table. Makes me think about the, uh, the very first leadership position I ever had. And I, I mean, I can close my eyes and I can still 
feel exactly. I can feel the temperature of the room. I can feel everybody who is around it. Like I can go back there so easily. And I, and it was like, you know, just a super entry level leadership role. Uh, but I sat down at the table and it was our very first leadership meeting and I was super excited to be there. And all of a sudden, like everybody sits down and I thought, holy crap, somebody's going to stand up at this table in this meeting and say, what is she doing here? She has no idea what she's doing. And what's fascinating to me is for you and I, successful type A women, lots of ambition, lots of drive, those are the things that stand out to us. Not the very first time we got recognized for something, but it's, it's, it's that woven in narrative that we tell ourselves about ourselves, which is so important and I think takes a lot of work and experience to get to kind of process and navigate through learning how to shift your mindset learning how to change the narrative of the story that you're telling yourself about yourself. And so that stood out to me because I, I mean, I can still close my eyes and be right back in that room. And it's fascinating many years later, right? That we still can have the conversation of like, yep, the first time I sat down at that board table or at that conference table. Absolutely. And I'm sure your heart rate even goes up to even. Oh, it does. Like physically, I physically feel like I could still be sitting at that table. It's fascinating. Uh, we are seeing more and more women step out of their corporate roles or traditional roles of whatever sort and into creating their own businesses, you know, into starting something on their own. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's become uh, a time in our lives when we're stepping out of these secure, comfortable, financially, uh, that provide that financial security for us? And we're deciding to step out of those roles. Why do you think that is? You know, I think that it's very different depending on the situation you're in, but the most of the people that I've spoken to that are doing this, they're doing it for two reasons. It's either out of necessity or out of lack of fulfillment. What I love to address first is necessity. So during COVID, that obviously put a spotlight onto everything we as women in the workplace hit, right? So all of a sudden you're seeing a two-year-old running around while, you know, mom's trying to do Zoom. You're seeing the the dirty laundry in, in the Zoom camera, right? You're seeing all these things that we were able to keep neatly tucked away for a very long time and show up as a totally different person, right? So we got used to this. A lot of us had to stay home during COVID for, you know, obviously the whole globe shut down, but right. then you know, the childcare issue and most organizations were not answering that call. Right. And the few that were, were glorifying it, putting it out there and actually capitalizing on it, which I'm glad they did it. But let's not use it for the, the intentionality that they did. And so now all of a sudden, you know, it's, I'm especially I'm here in Florida. They don't even believe that COVID ever really existed. <laughs> yes. And so everyone is calling their staff back to work. And the truth is, a lot of women can't go back. Right. It's impossible for them to go back. So I think that is out of necessity. And, you know, that that's really a shame because not everyone is meant to be an entrepreneur. And, and I don't I don't say that, you know, in a, a malicious way. There was a long time before I was ready to, to go down that path. Um, but at the same time, we have those that are on the other side of the coin that are doing it out of lack of fulfillment, which I think COVID we all had it before, but it just really shone a light. You know, we're, we're stuck in our homes, we're around our families, like, you know, everything that I read, like divorce rate soared, you know, all everything that was going on, because all of us as a globe were forced to step back and say, what do I really care about? What makes my heart sing? 
And, you know, even for myself, I was working in corporate America during COVID and I was actually working in healthcare. So I actually never did the remote. I never went home. Uh, but what it showed me was during all that stressful time and everybody I talked to that I knew it in my bones before, but it really took it to the forefront that this isn't for me, right? This I'm not meant to ask permission, right? And that's what got me in trouble through all of my jobs is I always asked for forgiveness and I always hated, you know, almost being stifled. Um, and again, that, that call and knowing like what I had learned from living those hard lessons, other women really needed to hear because oh, there's nothing wrong with staying in corporate. There's nothing wrong with not starting your own business. And there, you can thrive there. You can have a truly meaningful career there. So that is my take on why there's so many women doing it. But in, when you really compare the numbers, there's a bunch of us. But the, the comparison to how many male-owned you know, businesses there are, we're right. still major gap. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Given your career experience, you had a pretty intimate lens <clears throat> into thousands of compensation packages and offers presented to candidates. What differences stood out the most to you between those offers or comp packages to men versus women? Oh boy. I mean, this is something that <laughs> I could, you know, talk for days about. I'm right. fascinated by this. And, you know, the, the first time that I realized how much I cared about this was actually when I negotiated my first big girl job you were talking about earlier. You're, what we, it was like the Mecca. Um, and I left thousands of dollars on the table because I was just so grateful to have the job. And what I saw along the way that men always countered, I don't care what background they had, what privilege they came from or did not, whether it was men of color, it did not matter. They always, always countered both the offer and promotion. And what I found in my own experience of because I worked in people strategy for so long, so I extended thousands of job offers. I had, I mean, a handful of single digits of women that actually did. And they were very apologetic. Even when they did it, they even used words like, um, well, you know, would you consider, or, you know, this is why, or I just want, right, finish statement. And so what I saw was they were leaving so much money on the table, and me, as a people strategist, my job was to protect the company and make as much money in the organization as possible, let's be real. Now, did I, you know, at times say, you know, especially when they really low-balled themselves, like, yeah, hey, how about this number? Right. <laughs> and still do, you know, a fine, good financial steward of the company. Uh, but it was, you know, if to simmer that down, it was men just automatically knew this is what I'm worth. And women were really just almost embarrassed to ask. Yeah, that is um, that is fascinating to me. However, you know, thinking back to my personal career, I think there were probably two jobs that I really hardball negotiated on the rest of them. Uh, there were times when, it, when I would take that same stance and I feel like I'm a pretty bold woman, but there would be times where I'd take that stance in, would you consider, or, you know, I'd really like to get to, that's one that I would see a lot as the offers that I was giving out was I would really like to get to. And again, it's that balance of, trying to be a good steward of your resources for your organization, right? Your everything you're doing is is to uh, get to a solid bottom line. And, right? It's not an or and hire the 
the highest caliber people that you can. And, uh, and so I, I found that fascinating in that. And I think you had mentioned before something like give or take 3,500 offers were made. And did you, and I, if I recall this correctly, something like maybe eight women nine ever came yeah. back and actually All negotiated. Yes, I want one. people to hear that. I mean, I really want people to hear that because that is an atrocious number, right? And so for all the women out there who want, we're going we're gonna to dive deeper into this because I think that's really, really important. There are people who are hungry for this and terrified of it all in the same breath, right? People want to know more about how do I get the very best out of an offer? Uh, you know, I'm showing up of value, offering my skills, my talents, to this company and I want to be compensated well. I want to be compensated fairly. So for women who have never negotiated an offer before or are super uncomfortable, which is probably given the, the statistics that you just shared, I would say that's the majority. Um, so super uncomfortable with the process. What are three to five tactical steps that they can put to use in their next uh, conversation around negotiating their comp offer or maybe a wage increase, something like that. What can they take from this podcast today and say, my next conversation, I'm going to hit boom, boom, boom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that is something I'm asked probably on a daily basis because of that story. You know, what the first thing that you have to do before you really, you know, pen to paper or actually take action on it is to understand why you feel dirty even when you think of, I want more money, right? Because society has taught us since birth that money, women are really bad with money and you shouldn't want it, right? You think of the, the, the Wall Street guys that, you know, bankrupted us back before the recession, or we think of, you know, all these people stealing from the poor, right? When we think of when someone says, I like money. And I really want people to dig down and, and to really erase the mindset when it comes to that. And what I like to challenge, because I, I coach tons of women, I mean, women that are in the seven-figure total comp packages, and they tell me even then, I don't really care about money. And then I challenge them and I say, so do you care if your children graduate from college debt-free? Do you care if you can put your parents, once they age out, into facilities that are actually taking really good care of them, right? Do you care about giving back to charitable causes? Right. I mean, because these are all those things. So I think that is step number one is to reframe that. And then step number two is a negotiation is so much less about the number and much more about the game. Think of it like dating. Right. Very few of us um, like to be pursued uh, by the person that that there was no chase with, so to speak. Right. Um, so on this chase is you have to show your likability, but not your desperation. And I think a lot of women walk into these negotiations and you're just so grateful that you've finally been offered something and people can feel that. Like when you go to buy a car, you know, when, you know, th this guy is like, no, you have to buy this car today, only $9.99, right? <laughs> All of these things. That's almost the same vibe that we give off, but on the, the opposite spectrum of being, of coming across as weak and not confident. And then knowing your numbers, like everyone, that's what they want me to go to first. Um, I do a whole series on how to negotiate like a white dude. That's actually what it's branded. Yes. And people all, that's the first thing that they ask me is they want the hard numbers. Well, if you haven't done any of that work to get to the numbers, I don't care what number you throw out. The game's already lost. You're not even getting an offer to counter with, right? And if you are, it's not from the company you want to work for. 
And so when people know their numbers, what I mean is not going out to Google or, you know, pay scale and all of these things and saying, how much does, you know, a vice president of sales make in XYZ industry? Because all of those numbers are reported. They're not accurate because they're employee reported. So because I did what I did for as long as I did is in organizations, we can actually purchase compensation reports where organizations participate so we can have real accurate data. And the reason companies are incentivized to do that is because it's anonymized. Like I can't tell you that XYZ hospital pays, you know, 800,000 for this role. What I can tell you in the healthcare spectrum in the state, that's what the market rate is for the role. And for people to find that out, they need to work with an executive coach that has that or an executive headhunter. Uh, because working with a headhunter is much more lucrative to you because guess what? They get commission off <laughs> your total package. So they want to drive that up as high as possible. So you mentioned uh, reframing how you see money. And it makes me think about getting really, really clear on what your relationship is with money. And sometimes we don't even recognize what that is because it starts when we're kids, right? It starts with our upbringing. And really taking the time to unpack that and figure out what is your view, what is your lens on your relationship with money. I know for me, growing up with a single mom who worked three jobs to support me and my brother, right? We never went without. We probably didn't know how poor we were, my brother and I, growing up. But my mom would sit down and she would walk through the budget with us and she would say, look, there's this many dollars left. And so something that I remember is she would still like once a month, we would be able to go to this place called Lenny's Burger Shop and be able to get burgers. And it was like, that was the highlight of the month. But that was literally, there was just this much left over. And some days or some months there weren't that, but the months that were, it was like we had this little splurge, but still, so I, I never felt like I was really brought up in poverty, even though I was, I also didn't realize until I really started making a significant salary that I had a, a scarcity mindset around money. And I never even put two and two together. I just thought, of course, we all want to make a lot of money. We all, all want to have this financial security. We want to have, you know, uh, you want to get your stocks in place. You want to get your investments set up. All those things, what I didn't realize until I started unpacking it was those seemed like things for someone else. And you get to a place where if you have had an upbringing like that and you haven't unpacked it, it's a little bit scary to get to a place where you're making a significant amount of money. Because there are feelings of maybe you don't deserve this. Uh, what happens if I lose everything? You know, and so so fortunately, I was able to really unpack that and get and and work through that. And that was very. There was a pivotal moment in there when it changed my relationship with money. And so I think it's it's worth saying that it's worth people doing the work around that because to your point, if you don't reframe that. You know, you'll you you may have either an unhealthy relationship with money, or you may be shortchanging yourself by far, and that is that will come through significantly when you're negotiating or when you're getting offers or compensation packages. Oh yeah, absolutely, and that's why you probably like telling that story. It's a very similar feeling to your earlier story about sitting in that boardroom when your first you know executive level job. It's that same feeling of that's I shouldn't be here. Right. That's exactly right. Imposter syndrome, haha, now that we're digging into that, uh, has become such a more talked about topic among women nowadays. I've openly talked about how much I had a battle with it for years. And I'm curious if it's something that you ever struggled with. And, in, and if so, how did you navigate that? 
Um, I, I'll, I'll just say not just yes, but hell yes. Um, <laughs> along the way. Um, imposter syndrome, any woman on this planet that says that she has not battled that, to be quite honest, I don't believe her. Uh, because no matter where you grow up on this globe, there are subliminal messages that you are taught from the the time you come out of the womb to where you're at now to feel that. And that is a way for to control over society, no matter what society is, no matter where you land on that spectrum. So another big reason that we see it is when I was in my career, I didn't see any women in the positions that I ended up in. Very, very rarely. And so it literally wasn't for me from my worldview and from everything that I saw. Right. So I'm not saying that imposter syndrome, it's not, it's a real reality for most people. And the only thing that I feel like that really catapulted me to to get past the paralyzing fear of imposter syndrome, because I also believe imposter syndrome to a smaller degree is something we will likely live with for a very, very long time. And hopefully the next generation never doesn't even know what the term is. But I feel like that investing in the right mentors, investing in the right coaches But most importantly, investing in the right network. And what I mean by that is most of my early career days, I was not surrounded with powerhouse women. I was not surrounded with by women like me. I have a very different path than a lot of other women. And so when I was confiding in friends of, you know, hey, I got this guy at work and we just went on a work trip and he hit on me while I was there, right? They had no clue how to even wrap their minds around that or what that meant for me not having the confidence in that next meeting that I had to show up with because I was worried I was going to get fired, right? Because of I was very sassy when, when in turning that person down, right? And so when you don't surround yourself with people that are going through the same things you are, you can't move forward without throwing more darts and essentially failing. So you will, my opinion, live in that space until you actively make choices. Just like that's like me saying, hey, I want to lose weight, but I continue to order DoorDash every night. Right. I, I have to put forth the effort to recognize, label this problem and then climb out of that. Right. And I think so much of our wisdom today, we didn't we didn't start in our careers with the type of wisdom that we have. And I think <clears throat> a lot of that is experiential and it's through going through all the things, highs, the lows that we've gone through. And 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 for anybody who listens, they know that that's really the reason I created this podcast was to share that journey that that wonderfully successful people have in the highs and the lows, right? Because those are the defining moments. Those, though they're painful at the moment, on the other side of it, there is something, there's a lesson of some sort that really shapes how you lead, how you're showing up every day. And I'm a firm believer that we grow and evolve through those failures, the lessons and the missteps. What has been the most powerful lesson that you've learned through, you know, just one of those disaster failures? Oh my goodness, how much time do we have for today? So, I mean, there, I don't have enough time in this world to, to go through the failures and what I've learned. But I think if I could boil it all down was, I think my transition in early career coming out of, you know, obviously I worked full time the whole time I was in academia, um, just because, you know, very similar to your background, I grew up, I didn't have, you know, the family that could pay for that. And, and so what I found though, was in academia, I didn't realize that 
perfectionism doesn't pay off because it did very much in undergrad and grad school. I mean, I was top of my class, 4.0 GPA. I mean, if I did anything, I did it at 150%. And then I move into the workforce and I expected that same level of perfectionism. And, you know, I just shared this with, with my clients and, and in the newsletter last week where I really opened up about when that light bulb moment happened for me. And what happened was I had been going down that road for quite a few years of I had to be the perfect wife. I had to be the perfect executive. I had to be the perfect daughter that, you know, you name it. I did not do anything minor or at 50 percent. And to be honest, what that led me is to the ER. So I was driving into work one day and I had never experienced anything like this. And all of a sudden I'm driving down the highway and my whole body starts to vividly shake to the point I had to pull my car over because I could hear my foot tapping against the gas pedal and I was worried I was going to crash. And so I pull over beside the road and my heart is literally beating out of my chest, shortness of breath, hands and feet are going numb. Like, I think I'm dying, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a young person at this point. I'm in my late 20s. And so I finally brainwashed myself down enough to get into the car again, start driving. And luckily I worked in healthcare. And so I walked into my trusted CNO's office. I didn't even go to someone clinical. I mean, CNO's <laughs> are clinical, but you know what I mean? Because I was not walking into the ER. And I started telling them what's happening. He, of course, takes me straight to the ER and they run every test under the sun. And guess what? Nothing comes back. And I was then diagnosed with anxiety. And so I thought that was a crippling diagnosis. So I kept watching all of these people that I had, you know, glorified that learned what their higher self was and they could do everything. And I thought, oh my gosh, I am so weak. This is not even, you know, like the highest position I want to get to. And I physically can't even function. And what I realized after many coaches, many therapists, Reiki healers, you name it, I hired them, was it was all me. So my strife for perfection is literally what caused me to fail miserably and almost cost me my health. So that would be the one lesson that I think, had I not learned that, there is no way that I would have grown the way I did in my career. And I sure as heck wouldn't be here talking to you today. That's fascinating. Uh, I talked to another woman who has stepped on on her own as well. And I asked her, what what was it that led to it? And it was the same thing. She said, sadly, my health. And that is, it's a story that I can resonate with, you know, that resonates with me. I think about the times uh, describing it to my husband. I would say, I feel like I'm on the edge of a cliff. I feel like I'm the edge of the cliff and, and I can't, like, I can't move because you'll just tip right over the edge. And like, it's a totally, it's not, it's an unrealistic thought in your mind, right? You're not really on a ledge, but I've been to that place where it's, and I'm sure many, many people who are listening will, this will really resonate with them. That's not something that we should just kind of take and, and shove under the rug. That's something we should really pay attention to because to your point, that could cost you way more than just maybe a little ego of feeling like, oh, may I, I can handle this, you know, and uh, we want to be able to handle it all. We want to be able to control it all. And so that's really hard. It's kind of a, a hit to the ego or a gnashing of the teeth with our ego to say, I got to step back a little bit and I got to, I got to pay attention to this. Female mentorship or pouring into other women is a just core fiber of my being. And I have received so much value from others doing this for me. 
With the mission you shared earlier, it sounds like this is a philosophy of yours as well. How have others poured into you along the way that has really impacted your trajectory? Yeah, you know, I've asked this question a lot and a lot of people assume because what I do that I had some amazing women, you know, from the time I was very young till today that had invested in me. And I actually have quite the opposite story until about five years ago. Um, so when I was first, you know, landed in, in the executive C-suite, even at, even before at the director level, um, the very few women that were, you know, one or two steps ahead of me were taught, you know, and, and to, you know, I hold nothing against these women because they were taught that this was a pie and they got their piece and this is their coveted piece and no one can have it. Um, so not only did they not actively mentor, they did everything to ensure that other women didn't move forward. Luckily, I think that is one other great thing that COVID had really spotlighted all of these women that started to change my, in my experience about five years ago. And then once COVID hit, everybody was like, no, this is the time. And then of course, everything that's happening in the world. Um, but since that time, I was very fortunate in finding a few good mentors along the way. And then in the past two years, oh my gosh, I mean, I could sit here and name 20 women right now that I could call no matter what in the middle of the night and they would be there for authentically be there. Mm -hmm. And I think because we have all experienced, I think in some way, shape or fashion, I mean, if you are mid career right now, I'm sure your experience was very similar. And for those that are listening, we didn't have that in early career, the way that we can now get back to these 20 somethings that are coming up because, Oh my gosh, can you imagine how much further along we would be if we had right. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And the interesting piece, like I think about, I love data. I love statistics. I don't, I've experienced the same thing, right? Some of my biggest lessons around mentorship and people who have led me and, and maybe kind of poured into you in one way and yet totally, you know, stuck a, a hole in the bottom of your cup in another way is I have received exceptional lessons on what to do as a leader, and I have learned some exceptional lessons as to what not to do. And I think those are, you know, that's almost more valuable. Um, and so, but there was a shift somewhere, right, where women started showing up for each other differently. And I, same thing, like there are, I, I am surrounded by women who are like, what can I do to lift you up? How can I help? They're saying our names in rooms that we're not in. I mean, it is, it has turned, the dynamic has really shifted greatly. Uh, and which is a beautiful thing. And I'm so grateful for it. And I try to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to do that same in return. But there was, but you're right. There was, it was a, there was a shift at some point in time when that happened because women didn't always show up for women like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure that there are other women out there who may have a similar calling to effect change. They feel it in their bones and the way that that I think you and I can both relate to, what would you say is the next right step for someone really want having that desire, that internal desire to make an impact? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's defining how you want to make an impact because many, I think when, when we set out to say, I want to create change and I want to do this, it's always very grandiose. It's always, you know, I want to start a nonprofit foundation or I want to leave my cushy, you know, corporate career and, and strike out like, like you and I have. But what I have found is you can do that in the most simplest way. You just have to find out what works for you and your family and where you're at in your point in life. So I'll give you a great example. If you came to me 
eight years ago and said, you know, Brittany, I'm, you know, how do you make change in this world? At that time, I would have told you that I do that through volunteering as much of my time in the community as possible, right? Because at that point in my life, I couldn't, you know, do what I'm doing today. I didn't have all of that together. And so I think it's, you have to hone in on is where you want to get back. And it doesn't have to be on this grandiose scale if you're not ready for that. For those that are, are, oh my gosh, more power to you, but never ever underestimate those, those simplest things. Or someone at work, let's say you're, you're someone that you just got to a director level and you just hired someone on your team, you know, another woman. Have a weekly happy hour with her. Tell her your worst failures. Tell her the worst mistakes that you made in business openly and authentically. And I promise that will give back. Will you get burned along the way? Absolutely. But I am one of those. I'd be happy to be burned a few times if I get to help, you know, twice that amount of people. Right. Oh, that's, I love that. I absolutely love that. Rewind this like a minute and 20 seconds or so and listen to that again, because it is, there was a light bulb moment for me, similar to what you're just talking about around when you learn that it's not about getting what you can get from others and you learn it's about giving it all away, giving all of your lessons, giving all your guidance, your advice, your mentorship away and not expecting anything in return. There is, there's a shift in your world. It was a light bulb moment for me. And I completely agree. There will be people who will use it uh, in a way that it shouldn't be used. And that is probably one in 20. And, and I'll take those odds. If you can impact 19 of the 20, heck yeah, all day long. Absolutely. You know, given where we are both in our careers, this is one of my favorite questions. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, I love this one. This one's a lot of fun. The one piece of advice I would give to my younger self is to care less. Mm. And a lot of people really get thrown off when I start talking about this. So I remember when I took the light bulb moment when I said, you know what? I, I know that in X amount of months or X amount of years, I'm going to have XYZ dollars and I can launch my own business. And I literally quit caring about my career path. My career catapulted overnight. Mm. And it's because I would walk in a room and that literally not caring what the outcome was, is what made me magnetic. People wanted to hang out with me. They wanted to be on my team. And I had no clue this was happening. It wasn't until months later that someone actually told me that this shift happened because I, I couldn't tell the difference, you know, at first. And I remember being much younger and again, having that perfectionist, you know, dream that, you know, coming from, you know, absolutely nothing the way that I did and finally getting into this whole new world and not feeling like I've been there. I thought, well, if I fail at this, I fail for all women. And that's not true at all. If I fail for this, it's actually in the benefit of all women because then I can share what I did wrong. So I think the, the less that we care is as insane as that sounds the actually the better we are as humans in general. So the less we care about the outcome, the less we care about anything else that could happen besides how can I be present and how can I impact the person sitting right in front of me? So I want to make sure that the audience is able to connect and engage with you. Uh, Brittany does incredible executive coaching, consulting, and you know we are in the same space and and absolutely not uh, anything about competition. I think there is there's so much 
for everybody out there. And that's the space that I freaking love. (laughs) I love when, (laughs) guess what, sis, we're just creating a bigger table. Like that's, you know, that's a beautiful place to be. And so definitely check her out. I'll be linking all of this in the show notes, but where can they find you online? Where can they engage with you? The easiest way is obviously my website. So it's www.claimyourpower.com. And believe it or not, I'm also on TikTok. So it's not just for Gen Z anymore. So if you're like me and you used to use TikTok to just scroll and fall asleep too and then laugh, it's actually a huge platform. I put daily content out there. And then, of course, on my website, signing up for my weekly newsletter. Obviously, I the story that I shared earlier was very personal. I put stuff like this out every single week that there is absolutely free to you no commitment. Just take that message and spread it around so other people can hear it. Brittany, thank you so much for being on today. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll stick around. If you liked this episode, would you do me a favor? Go leave me a review and share what you liked about it. If you have comments that you'd like to share or ideas for a future episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can go to my website at evokegreatness.com and on the contact page, click the orange button and you can actually leave me a voicemail directly. I'll leave you with the wise words of seven-time Mr. Olympia, Phil Heath. There is no secret to greatness. What separates the good from the great is the very rare trait of not being satisfied with good. <laughs>